Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with my friend, Stephen Kotler. In this conversation, we break down some of the myths around aging, the idea that we reach a certain age and suddenly our memory starts to deteriorate and our energy levels reduce and our libido starts to drop and everything just falls apart. Um, I think that is a product of normal, which statistically, if you look at normal, I personally don't have any interest in being involved with that category. And most of the lifestyle choices to transition a person above the bar of normal in Western culture, uh, it's not much, it's not complicated, uh, it's pretty easy, and this conversation opens up some of those options. It also teaches you how to develop wisdom, where wisdom exists in the brain, and a lot more. Uh, Stephen Kotler is a good friend. He is one of the most most prolific authors on the planet. He's a multiple times New York's Times, New York's New York Times bestselling author, uh, award-winning journalist, and also the founder and executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's a badass. He has a book out now uh, called Nar Country, which specifically debunks a lot of these myths around aging, and that's what we're gonna do in this conversation. I hope y'all dig it. Let's go. Stephen Kotler, thank you for making time for this again. I've been Aaron, looking forward to the conversation. Good to see you. Um, I want to start with the question of something that I, I think about semi-regularly, or at least challenge when there's conversations around it. What, from your perspective, um, upon writing your most recent book, uh, doing all the research and investing yourself into the field of longevity and aging, uh, what is the most poignant uh, misconception that Western culture has around aging from your perception? I've got two answers to this and I don't know which one to pick. The Perfect. first, and I definitely, the most, the most dominant is, uh, what I, is the traditional view of aging, which is that what I like to call the long, slow route theory, right? This is the idea that all of our mental skills and all of our physical skills, they decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. That's the most prevailing myth. And I, if you're curious, I can talk a little about where it comes from because um, it's funny. So it's 1904. They, you know, we've had all kinds of ideas about aging, but in 1904, Freud is probably the dominant intellectual thinker in the Western world, right? And in 1904, he writes, it's like a few months before he turns 50, he's terrified of turning 50. And he writes basically, don't even try psychotherapy with people over 50. Their brains are calcified. They're not even educable. And Freud goes on to write four or five of his most profound books in his 60s. So like, it's not even true for Freud, but we get hooked on it. And between like 1904 when it's said and really like 1995, all science does is prove Freud right in every category. Like this is all the brain decay. This is all the physical decay. And like everything mm -hmm. is just done to prove Freud right. And then starting mm -hmm. about 1995, big holes start appearing all over. And for the next 25 years, everything we used to think declined over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. We now know with a handful of exceptions, and I think those are those exceptions are going to prove to be untrue when the, all the research gets done. Everything we used to think declined over time, we now know it's a use it or lose it skill. So if mm -hmm. you never stop training these skills, you get to hang on to them, even advance them far later in life than any of you thought possible. 
That's the first and the biggest myth. And I'll stop there. We can get to the next one in, in a second, but I want to give you a chance to talk. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what the, the second one is. I, I was talking, I had a podcast with a woman called Louisa Nicola that came out just mm -hmm. yesterday. She works at, at a place. Um, she's like co-founder or deeply involved in, in a place called Neuroathletics. And it's all about integrating training with cognitive function, a lot of hand-eye coordination and memory. And we were having this conversation and that was, and she kind of had some of like the traditional evidence and data around how the brain, I think like after 35 or something like that, mm -hmm. it starts to decline. Her suggestion was, it was like, I think it was like speed of processing was, was the thing. Yeah. That's the thing that everybody, everybody likes to point at. So, yeah. um, let me give you couple of things about that. Uh, so there's a, the, the one, there's a, there's a couple things that people like to every, every decade, there's a different thing. So last decade it was VO two max. Didn't matter what you said to somebody about longevity, they would say, Oh, but VO two max, it starts to decline at 25 falls off a cliff at 50 and there's nothing to do to stop the slide. And then they went out and measured the VO two max of octogenarian triathlete just on a whim. And it turns out octogenarian triathletes with about three decades worth of, of sort of regular training had yeah. the VO2 max of healthy 35-year-olds. Mm -hmm. So there's an idea that fluid intelligence declines and crystallized intelligence increases over time. And mm -hmm. part of fluid intelligence, processing speed, task switching, those sorts of things. So let me talk about a couple different ideas here. Task switching is where I want to start. One of my, uh, one, we, one of my, uh, Adam Ghazali, who's a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Francisco, runs a great lab. He had the cover of Nature about five years ago because he has developed a video game that is the very first video game that's been approved by the FDA as treatment as a medicine. So you can go to a doctor and say, hey, this is wrong. The doctor will say, play this game 20 minutes a day, three times a week for six weeks. What the game is designed to do is it's technically designed to treat cognitive decline in older adults, but what it focuses on is task switching, our ability to go from task to task. That's something that declines over time, starting in our 20s. He can take the brain of a 20-year-old or 60 year old and reset it task switching wise to that of a 20 year old. So this is what I mean by proper training. We're still trying to figure out how to train some of these things. The other thing with processing speed, and this is a more insidious and this, this is one of these things that may or may not, it's definitely real uh, where it's coming from and can we treat it open question. So we know that white matter brains are gray matter, your brains and white matter um, white matter is like myelination. So whenever an, an axon like forms a connection, if you use that connection over and over again, it gets myelinated. Insulation, it's white matter. It's literally when you look at it under, you know, you slice open a head, it looks white. Um, and that declines over time. And as a result, processing speed slows down. Now, the current thinking on white matter decline is this. Your bones, as you probably know, are the nutrient mineral factory of your entire body, right? Almost everything we, that runs your brain, calcium, for example, gets stored in your bones and then released. And bone, uh, uh, bone material is some of the only material that can penetrate the blood-brain barrier in certain ways. And there's new thinking that's saying that if we can increase bone density over time, we can slow a lot of other brain atrophy things that we now think 
go away and evolute. But really cutting edge research is saying, no, 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 it may be linked to bone health. And so there's companies like, I don't know if you bumped into OsteoStrong. OsteoStrong is yeah. a really yeah, amazing, right. They're a really amazing yeah. company with getting, you know, they have figured out a way, like you basically go work out with OsteoStrong. It takes 10 seconds to do their entire workout. But what you do during those 10 seconds is in four different machines, you put four to five to six times pressure equally on all your bones, which is exactly what's required to get them to grow over time. So they can take, you know, people with really severe bone density decline and really improve it. And you see all kinds of weird conditions, type two diabetes, a bunch of other stuff starts to go away once you improve bone density. They haven't yet. And I was just, I just met, just talked to the, the guys who run it this week about this very question. Um, they haven't run cognitive function tests directly off bone density, but there's uh, so th there's really cool stuff on which aspects of creativity increase over time, which ones decrease, and the decreases are all sort of linked to stuff we've been talking about. So theoretically, if they're improving bone density, you should see improvements in cognitive functions measurable on tests of fluid intelligence, creativity, that sort of stuff. So that's, that, that's part of it. The other part is this, and this is the other thing that nobody likes to talk about in this conversation is while certain aspects of cognition do decline over time in our fifties, there are three profound shifts in, in, in the brain. One, a bunch of genes are only activated by experience epigenetically. So like a bunch of stuff starts to turn on in our late forties and fifties. Two, mm -hmm. the two halves of the brain, which tend to work in opposition for most of our lives, start working together in our fifties. And three, the brain starts to colonize underutilized regions to sort of provide backups and redundancy and a whole bunch of stuff like that. As a result, as we enter our fifties, if we get it right, and we can talk about getting it right, what the hell that means, but if we get it right, we gain access to whole new levels of intelligence, three levels, three kinds of intelligence, relativistic thinking, uh, uh, multi-perspectival thinking and systems thinking, which are really sort of turned off before get turned on. We get new levels of creativity, empathy, wisdom. These are really core skills that come online. After you. So everybody wants to talk about like what goes away, but there's massive amounts of research saying, hey, wait, stuff goes away, but here's a whole bunch of stuff that comes online that will back up these other systems. And we have, there are some trade-offs, but you're gaining a lot of cognitive power in the second half of your life. It's just that people are not taking full advantage of it. They're not training it properly. They're not doing the things that you need to do to take full advantage of those brain changes. Hmm. Yeah. You're familiar with Ellen Langer, the book counterclockwise. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I love Ellen, Ellen's work. I mean, she's, I, if, if you're talking about the godparents of peak performance aging, it's Ellen Langer, yeah. right. Yeah. And, and Gene Cohn. Gene Cohn is the one who made all the discoveries I was just talking about. Right. And Ellen yeah. Langer, I mean, you know, her, my, her, she, she said one of the smartest things ever anybody's ever said about aging, which is that aging is absolutely as much a mental event as a physical process. Yeah. And, you know, spent her whole career doing that. And, you know, the work, her work on mindset paved the way for like some of the most stunning findings in peak performance aging are, you know, started with her work on mindset and bias and stereotype and things like that. Brilliant yeah. researcher. Yeah. So that in the counterclockwise book, I'm not going to describe the whole thing, but the, the main general gist of the study was she, she had a bunch of older folks. I don't remember what their six, age range okay, was. So six, it's 16, you want to explain it? Yeah. It's 16, 80 year olds, 70, okay. late seventies to eighties. 
She's yeah. at Harvard. She takes a couple hours north of Harvard to a monastery upstate, like in New Hampshire, I want to say, and could be in Vermont. And she has the, the, the monastery is tricked out. It's 1981. It's tricked out like 1961. Yeah. And uh, the, the groups get divided in half. One group sort of reminisces about 61. What was it like 20 years earlier? The other group has to pretend it's 1961. So they're mm -hmm. acting like it's 20 years earlier. And they're talking about current events, the Cuban Missile Crisis of is real time happening, et cetera, et cetera. And they measure everything you can before and after cognitively and physically. And the list of the benefits, and we now sort of understand why, but the benefits of tending to be 20 years younger are insane. After five days, people's gait changes. Their vision on a Snelling eye chart improves. Their hearing improves. These are things that were not supposed to improve, right? In your 80s, their arthritis goes away so much that they get taller, measurably taller, and their fingers get longer. And yeah. on and on and on, right? Cognitive performance improves. All the all this stuff. Um, yeah. It's a crazy. Um, I don't know if you know this, but people so don't believe it that that same experiment has been redone four times, three times as TV shows, like three different European television stations were like, oh, this has to be bullshit. Let's run the experiment as a TV show, like a reality show. Yeah, it's, it's really crazy. Yeah. And then I also did another, I've had Ellen on the podcast as well as Becca oh, Levy. Awesome. She, she wrote the, the, the book breaking the age code that mm -hmm. recently came out. And, um, I, I in there, uh, one of the things that she had mentioned was, I don't remember the exact specifics of the data around it, but it was people that had optimistic perspectives of the, the concept of aging and their experience with aging in their thirties. It was like something stupid. They're like 50% less likely yeah, to experience so that's, cardiovascular yeah, that's, disease. So that's not her research that comes out of this is this remember is when book, I said yeah. in the nineties holes start showing up. So the first yeah. hole is it's, it's the, it's, so it's the sisters of Notre Dame. They're this famous collection of like 500 nuns and they, uh, they're really into learning. They're really into education. They're really into science and they agree to take part in this giant aging study. And what they want to know in the beginning is like lifelong attitudes. Uh, one of the things that when they enter the sisterhood, average age is like 22. They have to write a biographical paragraph. This is my biography. This is my history. And this is what I'm looking forward to in the future. And then yeah. they late, they look in their seventies and their eighties, um, and when these women die and they start to realize that like how optimistic you are at age 20 has an impact on how you're going to die, how long you're going to live and how healthy you're going to be 50 yeah. years later. Right. So that's the, yeah. that's the first thing it's, you know, and, and, and Aaron, where it goes to today, cause it's not just that discovery. There's like six or seven others, but the point is peak performance aging starts young. The other side is true also, like interventions. We've got studies on interventions made in your late 80s in people who have been sedentary for 25 years and have all kinds of conditions. And you can still make a huge difference with interventions in your late 80s. But yeah. Ellen was part of the crew that figured out that, oh, shit, there's some stuff in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s that really matter. And there, and the stuff that really matters, interestingly, there's some, there's a, there's, there's some physical stuff. There's toxins you want to be avoid being exposed to and all that stuff. Um, and you want to eat right and all that stuff, but there's all, there's specific gateways of sort of mental and psychological development. that If you don't sort of get right, you're going to pay penalties for the rest of your life. Yeah. With yeah. mindset being one of them. Yeah. It seems, and mindset seems to be kind of, I don't know about King or queen, but it seems to be very oh, high on the ladder. Yeah. Aaron. So this is the crazy one. 
if you go downstream from Ellen's work to like what it led to, one of the things it led to is the Ohio study of longitudinal study of aging and retirement, mm-hmm. which is a 20 year study where they uh, looked at one of the main things they looked at the impact of mindset on aging, right. And mortality and all that and health and all that stuff. And this study has been repeated four or five or six or seven times with huge populations over like multiple decades. Again, positive mindset towards aging, meaning the, my, Best days are ahead of me. I'm really excited about the possibility of the second half of my life. That's what we're talking about. Produces an extra seven and a half years yeah, of right health up. and longevity. So yeah. what this means, if you're morbidly obese and have a shitty mindset towards aging, you're going to live longer and be healthier by changing your mindset rather than losing weight. It's the rough equivalent of quitting smoking. I want to take a moment and share the morning ritual that I've stuck with for the last year. That is crawling out of bed, walking to the kitchen, and pouring myself a glass of AG1. I learned about this originally from Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's been drinking this stuff for the last decade or so, and I am also a massive fan of the product. Why I like it is it blends several different supplements that I would take anyway. So it is a probiotic and prebiotic, as well as a multivitamin and also a mineral supplement. It is the highest sourced ingredients. It tastes absolutely delicious. I notice a measurable change in my energy and my mood and it is a gratifying sensation to know that i'm starting the day by covering my micronutrient baselines so if you want to take ownership of your health today is a great time to start athletic greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin d as well as five free travel packs with your first purchase to get this all you got to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash align that's a-t-h-l-e-t-i-c-g-r-e-e-n-s.com slash align i'm incredibly confident you guys are going to love this stuff go check it out athleticgreens.com slash align now the other thing that has a dramatic impact on all-cause mortality uh, cardiovascular disease and all things of the sort is loneliness and yeah so if if you want if you want to Build on that. If you want to, if you want to take peak performance aging, this was the second myth of aging, right? Is that it's not really a myth. It's just that when most people approach aging and, oh, I want to improve, you know, the second half of my life, they reach for the wrong tools first. They reach for diet. They reach for supplements. They reach for blah, blah, blah. Peak performance aging in a sentence. If you want to rock till you drop, you got to regularly engage in challenging social, to your point, and creative activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. That is yeah. peak performance aging in a sentence. And we can talk about why and what all those terms mean if you want, but that's it in a sentence. And social notice is right up front. You're totally right. So social, again, the same stats I gave, social uh, contact or robust, uh, robust social connection and preserving social connection. Um, probably the only thing that may be more important than that and mindset or tied is leg strength. And the mm. reason, and one of the, so leg strength is tried to both preserving physical health and mental health. And one of the reasons is when your legs go and you lose balance, you lose coordination, you lose leg strength, you lose mobility and you lose social connection. And so that's one of the reasons leg, there's others, our bones and our legs are the biggest bones in the body. And obviously if we talked about bones as the storehouse of minerals and nutrients and whatever, like as those things start to shrink, right? If you're not training leg strength, you're not 
improving bone density. And so you've got other cognitive impacts, but you're right. The social stuff has as much impact again, same, same as mindset. It's right there. Seven and a half years about quitting smoke. It's the equivalent to like quitting smoking. It's actually probably better than quitting smoking, uh, depending on your attitude towards smoking and whose numbers you're going by more yeah. important than losing weight. Um, a bunch of other things like that. Yeah. Something that I was talking about with some friends at dinner last night actually was the transition of architecture and from Roman times from before that, like Greek and, you know, all throughout Africa and Asia and, all, you know, all around, it was much more, uh, nature oriented and animistic and, you know, worship of the stars and the universe and the animals. And it was a lot of circles and a lot of like complex geometrical patterns and, it, it, it was more congruent with nature. And then there was a transition where suddenly we had much more pillars and right angles. And, you know, Egyptian times is the beginning of people starting to sit on chairs. It was like a, a symbol of, of being higher up in the, in the hierarchy. Um, but there was a trans, there was a, a, a cultural architectural transition into things being more squared off. Um, we see, we sit on square tables as opposed to a circular table you know, or a circular table on the ground where you're mobilizing your hips and you're taking your body through a full functional range of motion and you're able to actually have communal conversation. It's something that I've noticed one square table. Sometimes you go to a dinner with 15 people, but you just talk to the same person right across from you because you don't actually have that ability to connect with the whole room. Um, we do that in the, you know, our square houses that we live in. We live in nuclear households. A lot of people living in, you know, they're alone in an apartment. We're kind of like segregated and separated. It's actually in part deeply um, influenced from the architecture that we actually reside within. Is that ever anything that you think about within this uh, in relation to so, longevity of how your yeah, environment so, informs it? Um, what I think about when listening to you talk about that is, so this is really fun, novel outdoor environments. Why do we need activities in novel outdoor environments for peak performance aging? Um, uh, Outdoor, one, and you know this because I'm sure you've had people on your podcast talking about how time and nature improves mood, right? But what they don't often talk about is why. So what is it about time and like, where's that coming from? Why is that? And it's this. So your brain likes your brain. The basic property of all brains is the brain is always trying to predict what's about to happen. And how much energy do you need? That's what brains do. They're constantly, to put it in more formal terms, it's constantly like Bayesian updating, where they're updating previous ideas, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's going to happen next. How much energy do I need? That's what the brain is always trying to do. When you are in an outdoor environment, an outdoor landscape, whether it's ocean, mountains, desert, whatever, those are fractal landscapes, right? You've got the repeated shapes over and over and over. They're not exactly identical, but over and over and over again. The brain in a fractal landscape always knows what's going to happen next because it's the same forms repeated again and again. And we yeah. calm down stress hormones flush out of our system. And there's an exact density ratio of the fractal landscapes we prefer and weird trivia fact, Jackson Pollock, the painter uh, who left New York city, moved to long Island, started doing his splatter paintings while looking out at nature and the splatter paintings where he mimics the dense, the actual density of outdoor la la fractal landscapes that we most prefer are his paintings that have fetched the most dollars on auction. Hmm. Um, so one of the reasons that we calm down and ensure is, it, and we also, it, it develops what like William James used to call it soft fascination. It allows, hmm. a, it's a kind of 
non-focused focus is very meditative. The other reason that, that outdoor environments are important, and I don't know if this ties to the architecture you're talking about, but it's, it's worth thinking about, I think, through this lens is um, if you want to protect cognitive function over time, right, um, you want neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons and the creation of new neural networks, right? Um, now, lifelong learning matters because the neural networks you want most are expertise and wisdom. And that's this whole formula is designed to kind of promote expertise and wisdom. We can talk about why that's important in a second. But the thing I want to mention is birth of new neurons takes place in the adult brain. This we sort of discovered in the 90s again. But now we know that even um, up to 700 neurons are born every day in the adult brain, even up to the almost the day you die. But the question that's really important here is where are they? Where in the brain do they show up? And the answer is the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a deep brain structure that does long-term memory and location. It's place cells. It's grid cells. It's the part of your brain. We're hunter-gatherers. We have to remember where we were when emotionally important things happened. Where was that watering hole? We were thirsty for weeks. Where was that watering hole? Or don't go by that cave. We got attacked by a bear last time. Or where's that ripe fruit tree? After winter goes away, the ripe fruit is ripe. We got to remember that stuff. So I always say peak performance, peak performance aging, same thing. It's getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That's all we're ever talking about here. And our biology is designed to remember emotionally charged experiences that take place in outdoor, especially hunter-gatherers, novel outdoor environments. There's other reasons to lean on novelty. It's flow triggers, dopamine. There's a whole bunch of other stuff you get with novel outdoor environments uh, on top of just what we've been talking about so far. So it, that's not quite an architectural comment. I mean, we certainly have tons of conversations about flow and architecture and which room, what what's the best interior design for flow in various situations, you know, that sort of thing. That's a, that's a common, I don't know if we have answers yet. We have hypotheses um, and yeah. ideas. I don't know if we have answers. Um, yeah. Well, from an architectural perspective, one would just be like having a common space in a town. You know, if you go to a lot of places throughout Europe, particularly there is a, a common space kind of like in the center of, of, of the city or the town or the village or whatever it is. And in the evening time or throughout the day, but everybody kind of communes in that space. And maybe there's people performing and maybe there's people dancing or maybe there's just people hanging out, kids playing some kind of game. And it's just a part like you, you, you come back to that, that social dynamic play. You are such a hippie. You are it's really important. It's a big deal. And then the, and then it doesn't stop the fact that I can tease you. Yeah. And the, the other thing, the other thing would be, I don't, I don't know what they're called exactly, but what's the space architecturally where they, the house is kind of built around a courtyard in the middle. And it's it's outside, and they'll, they'll have like plants and whatnot. It's but court, it's like I think it's a courtyard in the middle. It's funny because oh, no, there's a day, term for it. Uh, I don't know what it is. I, right. I, well, I, they're I all choose, over, they're all over the with, place too. But you wouldn't see that in the United States so much. No, and statistically, but I, I tend to of, choose. I stay in a lot of hotels yeah. in wherever. I like. I, I I'm not a big city guy, and I get a little freaked out in cities. So I like to stay in hotels that have uh, interior courtyards. So I've got a couple of them like all over the place where I'm driving places where I, go, I look yeah. for that. Yeah. yeah. It, but it, if you can, if you me. can, yeah, if you can passively just start to indoctrinate and inculcate yourself into these neurogenic yeah. activities. I'll give you another one. If you live in a city, nobody does this. And it's very, it's a very good flow trigger is look up. 
Look yeah. at the corners of buildings against outlined against the sky. That yeah. tends to be um, for a bunch of different flow trigger reasons. That tends to be a very flowy experience. And for for folks, if you're wired like me and get super claustrophobic in cities because you're used to living n- in nature, um, it's a really good uh, way to calm down. And for folks who live in cities yeah. and don't get enough exposure to nature. Um, and want the benefits of nature. And, you know, there's all kinds of apps now that will let you, if you live in a city, they'll let you plot your, uh, it's a map making apps that will pick the, like the greenest path to get from a point A to B instead of the shortest or the fast, whatever it's the greenest. Um, but mm. if that's not available to you, look up, look at the yeah. corners of buildings outlined against, against the sky, um, is a, is a really good habit. It's also supportive with, with, so it's supportive with, with, uh, increasing alertness, creativity, mm-hmm. um, and divergent thinking. So going thinking, into yeah. creative thought and that's like, if someone's, and you, and you know, this is like an NLP concept slash probably lots of other concepts, but if you ask somebody a question and they kind of like look up for the answer, they're going into this divergent process where they're not actually going into their implicit memories. I might be using these, these terms slightly incorrectly, no, but they're yeah, not I going mean, into stored information. So, uh, NLP is the problem with NLP is sort of, but not always, and maybe sometimes. For sure, it's not yeah. right. Meaning, it's very hard. Um, but uh, d- it is true that we tend to look up and left actually when we're when we're accessing like imagination, basically. Yeah, but you can't right. say yeah. It's not it's not a hundred percent thing. But I I I I mean, just you, people at home, you can just do it yourself. Like generally speaking, if you're thinking about a hard problem or you're trying to like access information like from within that you stored information generally you'll kind of look down and kind of like in if you're thinking creatively you'll literally like look up almost like you're reaching into the clouds for an idea and that's you know that's the way that we we operate with that and so one of the things that you you suggest is supportive is actually creative thinking and like leaning into creative problems yeah so let's talk about this for a second so this is that that biological mechanic like musculoskeletal mechanical tie into that and the way that we can form our environment to start to be more conducive for those states is freaking interesting i think Uh, well one way or another this is gene cone's work we mentioned it earlier so there's those cognitive superpowers we get access to in our 50s i said there are we we can talk about like there's certain things that are dependent upon there's um, stuff that has to happen sort of every decade to unlock it. Um, we want to talk about what's going to happen in our 50s, but let me just walk people through the through it. There are so psychologists talk about moderators. These are if then conditions, and if you really want to thrive in, in 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 your later years, there's certain things you have to do each decade. And by mm-hmm. 30, it's really really important to, to as much as you can solve the crisis of identity. You got to know who you are in the world by 30, right? By 40. What, what, is, what, what, is, what does that mean, crisis of identity? Can you define well, that? Well, Eric, Eric Erickson is the one who came up with this. Around 12, right, we start to realize that there are roles in the world, right? And where do I fit? Where do I belong? What's my tribe? Who am I? What's my sexuality? All those questions, all that stuff, hmm. it, they start showing up around 12. It used to be Erickson believed that they were solved by 18. Right. When we started doing long studies of adult development, people were like, oh, no, like this stuff goes on by 30 and it can stretch on for a lot longer. But what we learned from like the Harvard Adult Development Studies and the Stanford cohort studies, um, term and cohort studies, is that if you don't solve it by 30, if you don't sort of know who you are, what are your strengths? What are your values? Yeah. How do you want to live a little bit? You have problems because by 40, 
you need to solve match fit or match quality, which is a tight match between who you are and what you do with the bulk of your time, right? Passion, purpose, and flow depends a lot on, on match fit, match quality. And if you don't know who you are, you can't figure out what's the right way to be in the world. And this is where things get funky by your, by age 50, you have to, you have to solve forgiveness. You have to forgive all those people who have done you wrong. And you got to forgive yourself for all like the shame, the embarrassment, you just got to put it down. Otherwise the empathy, the wisdom and the new, the intelligence that comes online. Like what some of the things that come online are like multi-perspectival thinking where you can see all around a problem. But if you can't, if you can't forgive those who have done you wrong, it's really hard to start seeing things from other people's perspective. Cause you're hanging why, on to your perspective too much. Why forgiveness at 50? I feel like forgiveness at 30. It's like, oh, well, that's, it's like, it's like so jump right on the forgiveness bandwagon as soon as we can. It's not, so forgiveness at 30 is probably a good idea, but we know <laughs> that if you haven't sort of sorted it by 50, you're miserable afterwards. That's the thing. With like Identity, wow. you can solve at 13, but if you don't get it by 30, you tend to be a miserable afterwards. Match fit, you can get anywhere, but if you don't get it by 40, you're going to be miserable afterwards. Forgiveness in our 50s. And then we started this discussion with creativity. So how did I get on this long ass tangent? Because in our 50s, to truly unlock these new levels of intelligence and creativity and whatever, we actually need creativity to do it. The brain, this is one of the reasons I said challenging social and creative activities, the sort of like pattern recognition you get from creativity and the divergent that's far flung pattern recognition trains the brain so like you get these the two halves of the brain they're working together like never before but if you're thinking creatively you're actually training them to do this much more so you need you have to start getting very creative in your 50s one way or another right or you're or you get locked out of of what we really want you know going forward to thrive you know until until to the end Hmm. yeah uh I love that. And that was actually one of the questions I, I had for you is how does a 30 year old, 20 year old, 40 year old, et cetera, uh, prepare couple, okay, for so longevity? Like, yeah, let me get, the, here's the one other thing that matters um, on the cognitive side. And uh, we, it touches on something I mentioned earlier. So lifelong learning is crucial to big performance aging. And the reason is, so cognitive decline, Alzheimer's and dementia, these are dis- diseases or conditions that impact the prefrontal cortex predominantly prefrontal cortex most powerful part of the brain it's also the newest part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective and it makes it the most vulnerable to insult so you mm. never suffer cognitive decline or alzheimer's dementia like deep in your brain stem nothing like that it, that doesn't mm. happen um you may have a stroke that impacts back there a couple other things but you never see cognitive decline there it's always in the prefrontal cortex it's the most vulnerable structure how do you protect the prefrontal cortex? You develop what, what is known as cognitive reserve. What is cognitive reserve? It's basically backup. It's redundancy. What creates redundancy? Expertise and wisdom. Expertise. That, now, this is not a definition. This is just a practical thing. Expertise tends to be all the shit you learn consciously. Wisdom tends to be all the stuff you learn non-consciously. Wisdom mm-hmm. are things like the, the quiet, like you may go into a room and hear a lecture on architecture and that's what you're learning consciously, but non-consciously you're also learning about the subtle th- dynamics in the room and how do people act and who's got the power, all that stuff. That's wisdom. And that a mm-hmm. lot of that is learned non-consciously. 
either in either case, both wisdom and expertise form really diverse, diffuse, redundant networks across the prefrontal cortex. So back in the nun study, this is the, this is what actually this was the the giant hole in the long slow rot theory. So when they the nuns all donated their brains to science. So everybody's brains got autopsied after the nuns passed away and they would have nuns living into their 80s or 90s, very long lived population for a lot of different reasons. But some of them had living into their hundreds and they had total cognitive function and then they would die and they'd autopsy their brain and they'd realize their entire brain was filled with tangles and plaques and all the signs of Alzheimer's and dementia. And like, they should have had, they shouldn't like, what the hell is going on? And it's cognitive reserve. The same question, same question. It, the 90s was the hotbed for this, for a bunch of different, the hotbed of Alzheimer's research, but also Reagan caused a lot of this to happen because it was revealed in like 97 that Reagan had advanced Alzheimer's in his second term. And so the question became for neuroscientists, well, how the fuck did he run the country? Like, how do you, like, even if you've got a cabinet backing you up and your wife, you're still president. You still have to give speeches and show up at press conferences and you're on TV and like, you can't hide the president of the United States. So what, how was this possible? If he's got advanced Alzheimer's, how is he running the country? And it's because wisdom and expertise have so much redundancy that even mm. though everything outside of those things was failing with him, the stuff he really knew how to do, he could retain into the end. Another example came out of art, William de Kooning, godfather of abstract expressionism, was painting some of his most expensive, most famous, most celebrated paintings late into his 80s when he had a severe advanced Alzheimer's. So how the hell is he painting while his brain is gone. So these are the questions people started asking, and this is what they started figuring out. But, and this is back to your point, Elkanon Goldberg, who's the person who made a lot of these discoveries, he's at, NY, he's at, uh, at NYU, um, and he was really the guy who did most of the work on wisdom, wrote a great book in the, I think 2005 or six, called The Wisdom Paradox about a lot of this stuff. Um, he, he said, you know, expertise, wisdom solves cognitive reserve. But if you really want to do this, start young. And this was mm -hmm. the other thing about the nuns. They were really invested in lifelong learning and they, most of them right. entered monasteries at 22. So like they were building up expertise and wisdom. There's a lot of teaching. So, and you know, the old saw, like if you want to learn something, teach it. So they were, there was a lot of that going on. And as a result, you see much greater cognitive reserves in this population. And that's why they did so well in the face of cognitive decline. I'll take a moment to share something that I think is an invaluable tool to have inside any person's nutritional toolkit, i.e. their cabinet. That is exogenous ketones. If you are a person that wants to be more productive, that wants to have greater clarity of mind, or if you're just a fan of generally feeling really freaking good, exogenous ketones are a path toward that sensation. I've been suspicious of exogenous ketones, historically speaking, because they have been very expensive and they tasted pretty terrible. Well, there is now a solution for that that is called Ketone IQ from HVMN. I freaking love this stuff. I take it before every podcast. I love taking it before I go for a run on an empty stomach and it makes me feel satiated. It makes me feel productive. It makes me feel almost euphoric uh, and it's good stuff. I think it is supportive for anybody to have as a tool for times that you need a little extra boost of energy and you can get yourself 20% off by going to hvmn.me slash 
align and then use the promo code align 20 to get your 20 percent discount on the product so they are affordable already plus you get the 20 percent discount so i highly recommend checking that out also they will be sold nationwide at all sprouts locations across the country starting april 1st but if you want to get that 20 percent discount go to hvmn.me slash align and use promo code align 20 at checkout to get 20 percent discount they have 100 percent money back guarantee you will love this stuff i hope you enjoy i'm gonna take a moment and share one of my favorite sponsors to date that is vivo barefoot these are my favorite shoes when people ask me what kind of shoes do i recommend for barefoot running barefoot training barefoot casual wear vivo barefoot they are at the top of the market most other barefoot shoes are coming off of the trend of vivo they did it first they did it best they're still doing it best in my opinion and i think you guys would really love these shoes also if you want to try them they have a hundred day money back guarantee so if you get this shoe you don't absolutely love it you don't think it looks cool you don't get good compliments on it, it doesn't improve your training then you get a full refund for the first 100 days so you have absolutely nothing to lose and you can get 15 off by going to vivobarefoot.com align that's spelled v-i-v-o-b-a-r-e-f-o-o-t.com align for 15 off 100 day free trial you guys are gonna love these things they're my favorite shoe i hope you enjoy vivobarefoot.com align so structurally speaking how does one uh, identify wisdom in the body in the brain and how does one specifically start to develop their wisdom how does one expedite that process that, those are interesting questions the the best way so honestly in a weird way uh a lot of time and flow can be very very useful flow mm -hmm. automatically expands empathy and wisdom. It does the work for you. Um, and, uh, you can, I mean, a lot of it is, and, and the, I would, I would argue, and this is an argument that, that we, that I, this is what I do in, in our training, the shortcut. And this is really, is loving kindness meditation, sure. compassion meditation, right? That's the shortcut. And the reason is what's cool about it is, I don't know if you've probably practiced it, but for anybody who hasn't, it's a script. It, you can run the script in 11 minutes to 20 minutes, but it's a script and you run the script. And it's also the most well-studied form of meditation. And I'll tell you a couple of really wild things about compassion meditation. But the thing about the script is empathy, multi-perspectival thinking, all that stuff is about the temporal parietal junction, where the, right where the temporal lobe, it's the parietal lobe. This is the part of the brain that does perspective. It does physical perspective, right? When you change your body position and look at something and does cognitive perspective. In fact, when this part of your brain goes haywire, you can have an out-of-body experience, which is an extreme form of perspective taking where your entire physical perspective shifts, right? Again, it's the same part of the brain. Compassion meditation and flow both automatically activate this part of the brain. So it does the work for you. I, the reason I like love and kindness meditation so much is it's giving you expertise and wisdom and it's great for forgiveness, right? Mm. For anybody who's got like any kind of baggage, it just allows you to practice it. And you don't like, all you have to do is pay attention to what you feel as you run the script. It's, you don't have to forgive people. You have to pay attention to what you feel as you run the script that stacks up into forgiveness over time. So I really um, I think that's the shortcut. That's the, that's the tool that we have. And here's the crazy thing. So uh, 
I don't even, I wish I, could, I knew the backstory for, for this. I don't know how this experiment was dreamed up, but one, you, uh, you may or may not know this, but there are nine known causes of aging. Mm. Um, and all of them, by the way, are linked to inflammation. So stress ages us, right? And inflammation aged, ages us. But um, uh, one of them is telomere attrition. So your, tel- your chromosomes have caps, right? These are telomeres. Um, and they're like bumpers on your chromosome. And as the, they're meant to protect the chromosome and the integrity of it. But as genes duplicate, right, the telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter. At a certain point, they can no longer protect the chromosomes. And you either get cell death or, or zombie cells or b- bad things start to happen. They te- they're looking at meditation styles and its impact on telomeres. And in, one, in a couple of the studies, they were looking at uh, compassion loving kindness meditation versus focus meditation. They found that six weeks of loving kindness meditation improves telomere health and slows telomere attrition versus focus meditation, which didn't touch telomeres. They have no idea why this is. Nobody can figure this one out because this is like, now you're getting into epigenetics and and really complicated genetics. And, you know, those pathways are, are a little too, you know, now you're talking about like genetic pathways from thought into genetics and we're not, we're just not there yet. Um, yeah. We know the pathways exist. We just don't know how they work yet. That's so cool. As you're talking, it feels almost like culturally there's been a trend towards focused meditation, focused lifestyle, focused just general orientation in the world instead of not necessarily instead, but it seems like there's a lot of bandwidth in that direction and that's, um, what do you, what do you call it? The, 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 what's it, what's the other version of meditation you said? The oh, loving kindness meditation. Loving. Yeah. Compared to loving yeah, kindness. That, meditation. So like, here's another thing we know is that, um, if you're interested in creativity, focus meditation is actually working against you. Focus meditation trains up convergent logical thinking. If you mm-hmm. want to divergent thinking, right? Real hardcore creative thinking. You want a Vipassana open senses meditation where your things are coming in and you're not judging them. You're just sound meditation works as a Vipassana meditation. Sometimes all, if you're letting in all the sounds, not just the thing you're listening to. Um, but so the thing and like different meditation styles, different results. And like, what's the perfect formula has, has yet to be determined, but focus meditation is great for stress relief. So it's sort of, sort of the other ones, but that's why, and it's the easiest to teach. Yeah. I mean, you just feel like that's something that I, I've the last I've, I've talked about it ad nauseum at this point. I did an episode about it, but I've been doing uh, I've been doing a somatically based therapy mm-hmm. session each week for the last few months, and I did a darkness retreat a few months ago, and then after that, I've been on this therapy kick, and been a lot of like ugly face crying and a lot of tapping into different parts of my body of stored tension and quote unquote trauma and, and things that have just been in there since I was a child or teenager, you know, very young. And I'm like, I'm, I'm in it and I can feel it. I'm like, I had no idea that this was a thing that you can actually visually tap into these aspects of yourself, find these shadowy contracted old kind of like scar tissue spots and be with them, release them, process this, them. It's very interesting. As I've been going through that experience, I've been noticing myself caring about people a lot more. And mm-hmm. if someone asks for help or someone, I could just tell that someone could use help 
or I'm I'm getting a a coffee someplace and I'm like making eye contact with the the waitress barista and like actually having a compassionate moment of really truly caring about that person, I can be, I can feel it almost it, it feels almost like it's it's like invigorating in a way like it's almost That's like it's like a nu- a nutrient that I feel. That's interesting. I'll give you another sort of weird mind body link up that I was thinking about when you were talking is uh, mm. so I said earlier. Uh, leg strength is one of the single most important things you can do for mm. peak performance aging, right? For preserving physical and mental function. But one of the coolest, weirdest benefits of leg strength, this is not going to be surprising to you, but it's wild is confidence. Yeah. Because sure. you have a stabler platform. Yeah, you want to feel right? like a cent- you want to feel like a you want to feel like a centaur. Goes through the roof and it's so yeah. weird, right? And if you've spent like your life, you know, in your gym doing bench presses and ignoring your legs, you have no idea, right? Like what's actually available to you if you actually start putting big muscle on your legs uh, yeah. psychologically. It's a wild. That's a wild one too. Yeah. So, so structurally speaking, what were some of the standout points that you learned in your process of writing NAR Country and learning how to go from beginner to intermediate as a uh, park skier was that the thing? Yeah. So, so, um, so what was what was the specific yeah, it, recipe actually, this that you guys utilized? I was just going to say it spun off of what you. Uh, I, I spun off of what you just said. So, let me give people a little bit of context. Uh, NAR Country, uh, the new book on peak performance aging, at its heart is this really radical experiment I ran where I took a bunch of ideas out of flow science, body cognition, physiology, really cutting edge stuff that said. Uh, if these things are true, older adults should be able to onboard really difficult physical, even physical skills. Uh, and uh, park skiing, which is the discipline in skiing that involves doing tricks off jumps and on wall rides and boxes and rails, is wildly considered a young person's game. The general thinking is for about 11 different biological reasons, if you haven't learned it by 35, don't bother. It's very, very difficult. And if you yeah. haven't learned by 40 or 50, completely impossible. Right. And I said, no, 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 these things are, that are true on paper. Let's see if they're true in the real world. And needless to say, I learned how to park ski fast, almost faster than I've ever th- learned anything. And part of why this is so to give you a little bit of backstory, which is flow states. And I think we've talked about this in our previous episodes have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 26 that have been discovered. They all involve focus. Flow shows up when all our attention is the right here, right now. And the most famous of these is known as the challenge skills balance. The idea that we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. You want to right. stretch but not snap, right? Now, the difference between challenge and skills, metaphorically, this is not real science, but this is 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 practical metaphor that everybody in the field trains from, but nobody can prove it is that the real difference for most people is about 5%. So when the challenge is about four or 5% greater than our skills, that's the sweet spot. Right. And for most people, that's like just outside their comfort zone, right? Not, you're not stretched too far, but you're a little outside your comfort zone. So you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. We realized this is looping back to what you were talking about with storing trauma in the body and things like that. There's something, I'm sure you've heard this term, allostatic load. Allostatic load is, right, the impact of trauma over time, psychologically and physiologically. And what we realized is it had a huge impact on the challenge skills sweet spot. And it was shrinking it. And 
we realize that at a certain age for most of us, it's no, even if, it, if we think it's like 5% open because of all the shit that's happened along the way, it's actually about 1%. Mm. And so one of the core things we did in park skiing is we slowed everything way down. The idea that we did is start with an established motor pattern. Something you can do hundred percent of the time with zero fear and no conscious interference and build on it one inch at a time. Right. Yeah. You want to do it in a playful improv based way. This isn't deliberate practice. This isn't like I'm going to do the same thing over and over and over again. It's deliberate play, which is known as repetition without repetition, right? A repetition with improvisation. And it's better for learning in most situations than deliberate practice. But um, this is sort of one of the reasons we take that approach and you, you want to go really slow to go fast. So even in we, I use this, this protocol to teach myself how to park ski. Then a friend of mine used it. He got really far. Then we ran experiments with it with a bunch of older adults. This was sort of key. And what was funny is our protocol works really, really well. So people make crazy progress really fast and we had to hold them back. That was the secret is slow. Even when you start making progress and start thinking, oh, I'm getting better, hold people back because allosthetic load is in, if there's an invisible influence there. And with that shrunken challenge skills sweet spot, it means that more things are producing more fear. Fear is cortisol and norepinephrine and it crushes performance right? Mm-hmm. Slows fast twitch muscle response, deadens our ability to access full power, has limits our creativity, uh, intellectually, does all kinds of other stuff. So we wanted to shrink it because of that very reason. Now, there, what nobody's sort of looked at yet is if doing a whole bunch of sort of trauma healing work along the way, if that would expand that out again, that's an open yeah. question um, that nobody's looked at yet. Um, but it's definitely uh, a big part of what what we did, and it worked really, really well. Yeah, the trauma work stuff is interesting because in Western culture, we have this whole cornucopia of what's called just idiopathic disease, just meaning it's like a fancy word for saying like we don't really know what's going on with it. And many there's been many N01 individual out there, and you know, just tons of people that have going through, maybe they went and they did ayahuasca someplace or they went and they did a Vipassana or they went and they did some trauma-based therapy type stuff and their skin condition starts to heal up or their, you know, whatever IBS or whatever the thing may be. And that allostatic load or that, that, that kind of like parasitic stress or tension, that load in the body through chronically being in a state of, of, uh, bracing or fear or tension, you know, bracing for impact ever since you were whatever age. Like that is a, a tax that is a drain on a person's telomeres and on their cells and on their neurology. Now I also, one of the things I, people get wrong about trauma and this is, I have a problem with some of the core trauma research Mm. um, because the trauma as a condition is massively overhyped. It's massively overhyped. Now, allostatic load is true, but the truth of the matter is most of the time when we encounter trauma, it's a good thing. It leads to post-traumatic growth. This is how we grow up. This is how we mature, right? It doesn't lead to PTSD in the vast majority of cases. And, um, but there's this whole cult, there's an industry built around trauma now and they don't want, like they don't, you know, so a lot of it is overhyped, but, 
doesn't change the fact that allosthetic load is very real, right? And it does things like impact, challenge, skills, balance. And like, I'll give you a weird one. So when I noticed years ago, when I wrote Rise of Superman, I would go into rooms with professional athletes, mostly action sport athletes, and I'd start talking about flow. And there was a temperature change in the room because they got so, it was like this, they thought they were crazy. They were having these wild ass experiences. They didn't know what it was. And here was a guy saying, no, no, you're not crazy. This is real. And here it's trainable. And here are the benefits. And the only other time I've encountered it is this new book in our country. You go into rooms. We are so afraid of growing older. I've noticed that when I talk about what we really know about aging now and peak performance aging and what's really possible, same thing that like everybody sort of like exhales. And I'm, I'm like, it's interesting. I wonder if our, the long, slow rot theory, I think has an impact on allosthetic load. Like mm. we think we're going to decline over time and yeah. we're so scared of it that, right. So, which is, which is interesting because that starts to say this is a little bit circular and, and weird, interesting yeah. Ways. Yeah. I, I this analogy that popped up as you're talking about the trauma stuff. Like I agree having fear of the trauma is probably not, not a solution. It's not that supportive. And we, we do, uh, I think overdo our, our perception of trauma and it, it, it feels like it's almost if processed and addressed correctly, the trauma is like loading a, a new plate onto a barbell. You know, it's if you like the, like the gift is in the pain. Like if you can move through it, you become a much wiser person and you have totally. depth. Like your well yeah, goes well, deeper because wisdom. you got jacked up. Yeah. But if you never got jacked up, you never put any plates on the barbell. And so that's the kind of irony with it. It's like, oh, no, no trauma. I'm traumatized. Well, it's like, so this is so and Aaron, this is what. So if you go back to the literature in the 90s, trauma wasn't a word that we used very often. It was predominantly, you know, we used extreme stress, mm. which was neutral, right? It wasn't, we had de-stress and eustress was the original division going back to the thirties. Um, eustress being positive stress, de-stress being negative stress. But even in the nineties, the word was extreme stress. It's only been in the past sort of 20 years that we've started to talk about trauma. And part of it is great because part of it is, you know, back in the nineties, you couldn't have emotions. Like men couldn't have emotions, right? Yeah. Like I always laugh when people like sort of like you go into a boardroom today and people are talking about their feelings and they're talking about creativity and passion and purpose and flow. You go back to a boardroom in the eighties or nineties when I was first like walking into those rooms, you couldn't even talk about creativity without being laughed out of like, a mm. bit, right? Like, it was amazing. And, you know, in the 80s, and a lot of this is in sort of in our country, in the, in the book itself, men couldn't have emotions, right, at all. Like the most rebellious thing I could do in the 80s was have feelings. So um, there's been a big shift. And, and, and that's really liberating and important because you can't talk about a thing. You can't fix the thing. Yeah. But in talking about the thing and here's the pro here's the biggest problem with with trauma is that you have trauma bonding all over the place and what people don't realize is that creates a victim mindset life happens to me and as soon as you have a victim mindset as soon as you're sort of celebrated for your trauma oh, all this terrible shit happened you were so right you are 
switching your locus of control. You now have an external locus of control. I have no control over my life. Life happens to me versus yeah. an internal locus of control. And first rule of peak performance, first rule of human performance. If you have an external locus of control, there's shit we can do for you. I can't help you. Nobody can help you. You've mm -hmm. given away your power to the universe. You're saying life happens to me. There's nothing I can do. And the brain First order of business is efficiency for the brain. So if you've given up all your power and there's nothing you can do, the brain isn't going to get fired up and do the work at all. It literally, it's the same thing with a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, right? That's the issue with a fixed mindset with intelligence being fixed at birth, right? Versus I can grow, I can learn. The brain as an efficiency-based organ won't get up for the fight. If it doesn't think you can learn anything because you've got a fixed mindset, it's not even going to activate the structures you need to learn. Because that would expend a lot of energy and the brain is trying to conserve energy for when it needs it. And right, that's the same reason the brain is predicting every every next second, right? How much energy do I do need this? How much energy do I need? How much energy do I need? So those are the difficult, I mean, there's like some of it is really, really healthy, but when it becomes like this cult of trauma and trauma bonding and victimization and life happens to me and the man happens and there's a conspiracy and they hate me and it's, yeah. you know, it's innate racism, whatever it is, you're just giving up your power. And at that point, literally from a peak performance standpoint, there's not a whole lot anybody can do for you because yeah. your brain won't get in the fight. And that's, I think that's, most typically trauma informed like that's coming from a place where a person has at some point in their life felt the the, the need to shut down and suddenly take their locus of control outside of themselves and they haven't actually processed that experience and that's where i think it's, it becomes interesting where the, the world of you know psychotherapy or somatic therapy or maybe psychedelic research and things of the sort can start to come into some of those places oh, that totally. really do and you know there's weird stuff so like i'll give you personal example of my own life. I am really good at regulating my nervous system in the face of physical danger, in the yeah. face of sort of creative and intellectual dangers, but like emotional stuff, I yeah. am not good at, I'm not nearly as good at regulating. My oh, nervous bro. System, Tell me about right? it. Um, <laughs> and, right. So <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. um, you know, and so you can have like, it, you can, you can be that it, it works in weird ways, right? Like just because you can do it over here doesn't mean you can do it over here as yeah. well. And you have to sort of learn that Kung Fu along the way. Yeah. You got to go here in a, in a couple of minutes. I got, a, I got about a minute, two minutes. All right, Probably cool. one more question uh, if you have a final question or one more comment, if you've got a final comment. I mean, I, I had a good time. I don't want to, I don't want to, we don't need to take it to the absolute max. Although, I mean, I could talk about this stuff for the rest of the day. Um, I'm really excited about your book, Nar Country. I'm so grateful to get to do this today and get to share about all this stuff. Hopefully we can do it again. Um, what's your suggestion from here? I, I imagine go grab the book, Nar Country. I think it would be a good solution. What's, what's, good where do people go from here? Good, good solution. I always say like, you know, we touched on it. If you're interested in this stuff, you got to, it starts with mindset, mm -hmm. right? You've got like, uh, you got to shift your mindset around aging. Now, I will tell you personally, because I think mindset's a little hard to shift. I mean, that's a, oh, just change your mindset, right? Like as if, you know, as if I was changing my underwear. And one of the things that I found, and, and we advocate for like these NAR style challenges, right? Pick a challenge that you really, a, lot, a really challenging activity 
um, where it explodes your mindset. Like when I was learning how to park ski, it didn't matter what I believed about aging. There was a point when I like was doing 180s and 360s and nose butter 360s and all these, like whatever I thought was possible in the second half of my life, that got exploded when I started doing shit that everybody told me was impossible in the yeah. second half of my life. And that was the, like, that was the most, that was the most fun uh, way to do that. And mm. so I, I, you know, it, we, you know, we built an entire training that, that, that is, we're going to be available in April at the flow research collective, enter the NAR around these ideas. Um, but, uh, and it's about, about like this very thing. How do you, how do you kind of create your own NAR style adventure? I taught myself how to park ski. That's probably not for everyone, but everybody's got like that, that thing that they've wanted to do their whole life that they haven't done for X, Y, Z and you know, here's a way to do it uh, for peak performance aging benefits. But I like that was the coolest experience I had along the way. And this, which is the reason I'm mentioning, because it was it was really like changing your mindset sounds like this isn't one of those impossible hardware. How do you do it? Like all that stuff. Uh, but when you create like a quest where like you can't accomplish your quest without blowing up the old mindset, yeah. then it gets really interesting. So yeah. that's, I think, where I'll, where I'll, where I'll stop. Cool. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Um, I look forward to the next time we do this. Thank you, Aaron. Great cool. seeing you again. Hope you guys dug that conversation. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get each week's episodes. Uh, thank you so much for leaving us reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to this. If you are inclined to share this mofo on the gram or anywhere of the sort, you can take myself at Align Podcast. You can tag Stephen Kotler at Flow Genome Project. I hope you have an excellent week. I'll see y'all soon.